what I'd like to talk about this evening are the qualities in the areas of faith and motivation. One of the major differences that exists between the Mahayana and the Theravadan traditions of Buddhism is the different emphasis that is placed upon the areas of faith and motivation. Now probably most of you have read some of these kind of ancient stories about uh, the trials of potential yogis about how people who wish to practice in the Zen tradition would be asked to hang around the gates of the monasteries for months or years before being accepted, about people would be asked to go through all kinds of sort of challenges and tests before they would be permitted to to study or to practice meditation. Now these stories, which are so much a feature of the Mahayana tradition, are stories that, of course, do not just belong to the past. That whole tradition of testing the faith and the dedication of potential yogis is still very much alive and well in the Mahayana tradition. Um, I know myself when I went to India and wanted to practice, I very much went with the attitude of uh, a kind of arrogant and impatient Westerner who kind of regarded meditation or uh, like going into a fast food restaurant, you know, you just put in your order and you got what you wanted. And I know when I first found a teacher that I wanted to study with, I automatically assumed that all would be involved with me be my asking. And I remember I was very, very surprised when I was essentially told to get lost. And this went, of course, you know, brought up the whole thing of, you know, wanting it more, wanting it more. And every day for many weeks I would go and ask with Gaseya, please, might I study with him, please, may I be a student? And he would say, no, 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 go away, I'm too busy, I have too many students, I'm not interested in teaching meditation, go away. And finally, one day after many weeks, he gave me a box of noodles, which was my admission ticket to the spiritual life, um, which was, of course, a great relief. But even then, after having that admission ticket, I assumed I would be immediately initiated into great tantric rites. Instead, I was asked to go away to do months of prostrations and reflections. Reflections. I kept waiting for the esoteric meditation to begin, and instead I would be asked to go away for one week or for two weeks and to reflect upon intention or motivation, why on earth I wanted to do this. I would be asked to go away and to reflect for several weeks, months, on the preciousness of Dharma teaching. And he would tell stories, you know, like the Dharma, uh, to imagine a, a, a blind tortoise swimming in an ocean, and every thousand years, 
this blind tortoise would swim up to the surface on the ocean on which floated one golden ring. And what would be the chances of this blind tortoise every thousand years getting his head through this golden ring? Of course, it would be fairly rare. And such was the preciousness of the Dharma. We'll be asked to reflect upon compassion and interconnectedness as a motivation for meditation. We'll be asked to sit and just to consider that all the sentient beings in the universe had at some time been my mother. And in that light of those sentient beings being my mother, how would I wish to relate to them? For a lot of Westerners, this was very difficult. Some would say, you know, I don't even like my mother. You know, why should I want to treat sentient beings like I want to treat my mother? All of these reflections, all of this kind of work that is really so common and so fundamental in the Mahayana tradition really has a particular purpose. And the purpose of that work, or that, reflection. It was not to exercise an already over-exercised mind, but really the purpose or the intention of all of that reflection were several purposes. One of them was to cultivate dedication. Dedication, perseverance, steadfastness, um, willingness. That was one purpose of the reflection. The other, one other purpose was to cultivate vision. To cultivate a real sense of vision of really what the whole teaching of the Dharma was about. That it wasn't about, you know, my personal excitement at tantric initiation. That the purpose of Dharma teaching was for the liberation of all beings and for the end of all suffering. Another purpose was to cultivate a profound sense of faith in that vision. That just as thousands, as countless people before us traveled this path set out on this journey and discovered what it means to be awake, so too is it possible for us to make those same discoveries, to experience the same revelation, to experience that same quality of liberation and freedom. And much of the reflection that a person is asked to do in, that, in the Mahayana tradition is really to deepen in this sense of faith and trust that all of us have the capacity to be fully awake, free, compassionate human beings. And so much of this kind of reflection is considered to be a kind of preparation for meditation. An essential preparation for meditation is, in the Mahayana tradition, it's considered to be almost like a, a preparation of the ground, a laying of the foundations, a cultivated kind of an inner readiness, an eagerness, a motivation, and, and wholeheartedness that is then brought 
into the practice. Now, in the Theravadan tradition, which mostly this style of meditation comes from, there is very little emphasis that is given to this kind of prior preparation or reflection and no one is asked to have a perfection of faith or a perfection of motivation before they come, in, come into this practice. It is, more, it is more assumed that if one sits, if one is present, if one is really prepared to undergo this kind of solitude, aloneness and contemplation, that all the faith and all the motivation that is needed will just develop and grow through one's own experience. There is a trust that one's actual experience in meditation will produce the right motivation and the right faith. Now I think there are actually (coughs) pros and cons to both approaches. It is certainly true that in the Mahayana tradition with its emphasis on preparing an inner readiness and a dedication, that many people begin the actual practice of meditation with a very deeply established sense of faith and inspiration and motivation and with a very vast sense of vision. I think there's an appreciation that all of this does so much to alleviate the burden of doubt, which is one of the most heavy burdens to carry in a spiritual journey. But it's also probably true that there are many, many yogis then who simply are turned away from the path, turned off the path, who feel they'll never be, never really have the right motivation, never have the right perseverance, and so in some ways are excluded. But I think it is also true that in this tradition where, you know, there's so much openness, so much of a kind of open-handed approach to coming into meditation, that what we take with that openness, of course, is the need to be willing to understand the power of doubt as it arises in our practice. That certainly faith and meditation, faith and motivation is something that then calls for a kind of constant renewal and constant reflection because both faith and and motivation are simply so fundamental to deepening in this practice. Now, faith is a hard word for um, lots of Westerners for different reasons. You know, if you come from a very religious background as a child, you've probably had too much of a kind of blind faith imposed upon you. You've been told to believe, you know, whenever you have a a tricky question, you know, that nobody seems to have the answer to, you've been told to have faith. You know, there is something greater than you that is making sense out of all this chaos or conflict. And so for many Westerners, of course, they come into meditation practice greatly relieved that no one is going to ask them to have faith. 
other people if you don't come from a religious background in your childhood you may actually really not have any feeling at all for this quality of faith what does it mean to have faith in something what is faith what does it feel like what does it look like what does it do you may absolutely, you know, that you ask what faith is about and there may absolutely be no answer forthcoming from within. In the practice of meditation, I would say that faith is actually, we can use the word trust if it's more palatable to you, that faith is actually one of the most important ingredient for deepening. One, because one of the major obstacles, one of the major challenges and difficulties we find ourselves being conditioned by in our own journeys is the quality of doubt. And doubt is certainly one of the most paralyzing and debilitating of feelings that's possible to experience. Faith is that quality that strength is founded upon, that perseverance is founded upon. And faith is actually what gives us the willingness to draw no conclusions, to remain in a place of unknowing and you probably experienced, you know, in the few days we've been here, how much the mind is always seeming ready to jump out of a place of unknowing into a place of knowing. How the mind is always so ready to jump and eager to have conclusions and to have labels. And faith is actually what allows us to rest in a place of not knowing where we can let go of conclusions. Now the quality of faith I'm talking about here is a very specific flavor of trust. There are different qualities of faith and not all of them are helpful to us in this journey. And sometimes we come to this path. We're looking for changes and sometimes we're desperately looking for changes. We're desperately looking for answers. We're sometimes desperately looking for ways out of conflict, ways out of ignorance. And sometimes when there is a level of desperation, there is a tendency of mind to look for something or someone to trust in, to have faith in. As such, I created at times Guru. There is also a tendency in many people's minds to long for heroes, to long to have someone to admire, to look up to, to emulate, to have an image of perfection to aspire to. And because of that, sometimes people, sometimes practices, sometimes techniques, sometimes traditions are kind of placed upon a pedestal. 
seem to be sacred above all else seem to be unmarred by imperfection and attempted to be emulated. The difficulty with doing this, of course, is because there is such a projection of desire and projection of perfection onto people or onto things is that the degree of faith and trust that we have on that which we admire or worship, try to emulate, is also the degree of pain we tend to experience when someone or something doesn't measure up to our notions of perfection. The other difficulty is that in looking outwardly or upwardly with faith and devotion is that we can have such intensity in listening outwardly, in looking upwardly, that we become quite deafened to listening inwardly and quite blind to looking inwardly. And I think this quality of faith that at times can be helpful to have faith in another person, to have faith in a practice, must inevitably always be accompanied by a similar level of inquiry to see where we are seeking for someone to fit into our models of perfection, to see where we are seeking for something out of desperation to present us with solutions or identities or affirmation or confirmation or applause for being someone. The desire to belong, the desire for approval is such a driving tendency within the human psyche that it is a great need for inquiry, for questioning. Otherwise, we may go through the motions of the spiritual life, feel we belong, feel we're approved of and accepted, and yet be missing the heart. And this happens too often, that people feel, you know, that how many people in the history of spirituality feel that they have discovered the true path and the only way endless numbers. Faith, I think the faith that is really important in this journey is more than devotional. It is more than, far more than looking up to something or looking outwardly to something. And it is certainly not blind. And that is why I feel there is such an emphasis in, in the Buddhist tradition in combining the whole development of trust with the development of motivation. But these two are seen to be so, so closely in rapport, so closely connected. Now, motivation is something which is a kind of chameleon. It changes constantly in our practice depending on our experience and through the depths that we come through. But most of us, when we come to a spiritual journey, we are motivated on some level by a feeling of dissatisfaction. It might be a lukewarm dissatisfaction or it might be a crisis of dissatisfaction. We want to be free from discontent. We want to be free from pain. We want to be free from limitation. We want to be free from ignorance. Intuitively, something tells us that this is possible. 
that we do have the potential within ourselves to deepen in wisdom, to live with compassion, to live as awake and conscious human beings. Sometimes when we begin in this path, moved by that dissatisfaction, we start to set up agendas of personal change. Now this is often an initial motivation that moves us in this path. We want to be a different kind of person, to have more love, more openness, more sensitivity, less greed, less anger, less jealousy. We like to be more generous, more wise, more, more caring, less defensive and less angry. We're often looking for personal change and sometimes we're looking for personal improvement. Now this motivation is understandable. It's totally understandable. And in many ways it is the starting place for most of us that begins us in a search, a quest, a seeking, for understanding. The difficulty that comes with this motivation when it's very much linked just to personal change is that we tend to be filled with faith when everything is terrific in our meditation, when everything goes well, when we feel ourselves becoming calmer, becoming more spacious, becoming more open, when we feel delighted, we have so much faith, you know, we'll talk about our devotion to the practice and our trust in the practice. When we see our minds become more calm, more still, when insight begins to blossom, to, to be available to us, we have a great deal of ease in developing faith. But, of course, the faith that is linked to the signposts of personal change is also a faith that dissolves as quickly as experiences dissolve. So that when we have an experience of, you know, the mind that's in chaos or confused, when we find ourselves filled with reactions, when we find ourselves kind of floundering in hindrances, our faith tends to be immediately overwhelmed by doubt. What am I doing here? Why am I doing this? I should be doing a different kind of style, I should be in a different place, I should be on holiday, I should be on the beach, you know, I should be, this is not for me, I'm not the right kind of person for wisdom, you know, I'm not the right kind of person for compassion. The doubt tends to arise as quickly as the faith has arisen when it is linked to experience. Now the difficulty with undertaking practice motivated simply by the need for personal change once to experience personal change is that signposts simply become too important. And for many people in this practice, signposts <coughs> become too important. Now, it's understandable that we would all like to have a carefully planned out map with very specific signs on it that tell us when we're doing well and when we're getting somewhere and when we're progressing and when we're making some changes. 
The difficulty is, of course, that we tend to evaluate ourselves by the signpost. When we have a moment of calmness, yes, that's a step forward. A moment of dullness is interpreted as being a step backwards. A moment of clarity, yes, it's a great movement or a great jump. A sitting of confusion, oh no, now I'm doing terribly. And we tend to too often evaluate our own worth on the basis of these very, very superficial signposts on how we interpret them. We compare and measure ourselves. I'm progressing, I'm regressing. I'm going deeper, I've become so superficial. And then we find ourselves, of course, as long as we are measuring ourselves by signposts, swinging between extremes of faith and of despair. The faith that is important in this practice is something that is carefully nurtured. It is not separate from experience, but nor is it dependent upon experience. And the faith that we need to nurture and cultivate in this practice needs to have a much more substantial foundation than just experiences of gain and loss or uh, success and failure or good mind states or negative mind states. It's not possible to cultivate faith, I don't think, without cultivating vision. There is a wonderful way of seeing this practice. Where we begin with a statement, whether we believe it or not, that we are already free. Now this is the essence of Dharma teaching. The essence of Dharma's teaching is that we do not become enlightened. We do not become liberated. We do not gain compassion. We do not uh, accumulate wisdom that we don't progress in depth. These are not actually, the uh, these kind of statements are not the essence of Dharma teaching. The essence of Dharma teaching is that awareness shows us the way to let go to what we already have, to what is already with us, to who we already truly are. Now this kind of vision that says that we're already free, that we are awake, that we are liberated, we simply must wake up to that actuality. It's very difficult, of course, to accept or to accommodate when our moment-to-moment experience may be one of feeling confused or getting caught up in in mind states of being judgmental and all this kind of marking us that can swim around from the personality and the mind and the body, which can be so much at the forefront of our experience when we sit with ourselves. It's hard to really understand that in and through all of that marking us there actually lies an awareness which is crystal clear, that is untouched by personality hiccups, that is present, ever-present and enduring. But this is actually, this trust that this is the truth of our being is actually 
the beginning of the faith that is really needed to deepen in this practice. We cannot in any way measure the worth of a single sitting. No matter how bad or how good, it is absolutely impossible to measure its value. We can't actually in any way evaluate progress. It's not possible. No one, I've never met anyone in this practice who moved in a very linear, predictable, progressive way towards insight. It's impossible to measure insight. It is absolutely impossible to measure in any way the way in which a single sitting, a single moment which is dedicated to sensitivity, it's impossible to measure the way in which in a single walking that is undertaken with great awareness and clarity, the way in which that contributes to the peace and the well-being in our world. It's not possible to measure development inwardly. This practice actually asks us for a renewal of commitment again and again to being awake. That is all that it actually asks of us. There is nothing in this practice that outlines to us in any way that this is a, a vehicle or a path for becoming a better improved person. There are no promises in this practice. There are no guarantees, but what is, is asked, what is asked of us is to renew our commitment, our dedication and our devotion in every moment to being awake. Now, it might be useful sometimes to reflect on what difference it might make to your actual practice to begin every sitting and every walking with a commitment to freedom. What difference would that make? Now certainly it, it could make some difference. It could make some difference, especially when we get caught up in those models about, you know, I'm, I'm a terrible person, I'm a great person, I'm a spiritual person, I'm a wimp, I'm a smarter, I'm, you know, a star in this show. It could make a substantial difference when we start getting into this so familiar frame of mind which is constantly measuring who we are by what we have or that is constantly defining who we are by our judgments. Now, to begin every sitting and every walking with a simple commitment to be awake, to be free, to be entangled nowhere, to grasp hold of nothing, this actually puts all of those very predictable and conditioned patterns of the mind in really quite a different light. And it actually does contribute to really deepening a sense of vision inwardly and a trust in that vision because our experience begins to show us, to reveal to us that that vision and that possibility is accessible to us, is realizable in the moment, not in the future and not later on, but in the moment. There is a place for doubt in this practice, but not the doubt that is so inspired by signposts or by judgment. Sometimes we doubt the things we 
fear, we doubt the authorities, we doubt what we hear and talk. It's absolutely fine. It's absolutely fine. In fact, it's wonderful. Because every moment of true doubt is actually a moment of questioning. Is actually a moment of inquiry. Every moment of authentic doubt, of, of helpful doubt, of creative doubt, is actually a moment of inquiry, an inquiry which returns us to ourselves. The only place to turn to when we doubt is to this moment that we're in, to our experience of it, to our capacity to learn from it. And sometimes, you know, when we feel we're doubting, that may not seem to offer us a lot, but actually this moment that we're in is our most profound teacher. It has everything that we need for wisdom, for compassion, lies within this moment we're experiencing. This moment holds the world with all its phenomena. This moment embraces our capacity for awareness. This moment embraces the relationship between our own awareness and the light of that awareness and the phenomena that is, in, that is accommodated within it. We don't actually need any more than that for transformation and for wisdom. Faith, as I mentioned, is something that is constantly, that is nurtured to this renewal of commitment to being present. It is needed because in this journey that we engage in here, all of us inevitably go through times where there are many shadows and many valleys. Times when we do really struggle. Times of resistance, times of grasping, times of feeling lost. Times of feeling fearful and anxious times of feeling dull. We can never underestimate the incredible desire of the self for survival and the ways in which it will take hold of almost anything in order to survive. Because of those shadows, trust is needed. Trust in our own possibilities trust in our own capacity for awareness, trust in our own faith and our own capacity for learning, so that these shadows and these valleys we travel through don't become enemies to be transcended or obstacles to be overcome or ways of denying ourselves, but so that these valleys and these shadows are actually our very opportunities for learning and for deepening. Faith is needed so that we can make the passage from what we know to what is not known. Now, every time we come into a retreat, every time we sit and every time we are walk, we are actually making a journey from that which we know to that which we don't know. Every time we let go, Every time we're not caught up in grasping, every time we're willing to let go of the props and the habits and the routines and the, and the identifications, we're actually making a journey from what we know to what we do not know. 
And in that passage, from what we know to what we do not know, there is inevitably fear. Some level of fear. It is so often a companion to letting go. Faith is actually about gives us that strength to be willing to stay open to the shadows and to the fears rather than to be overwhelmed. Now, this happens in a retreat in ways that we don't always understand. For example, sometimes, you know, well, oftentimes when people come on a retreat, especially if you've done some practice before, there's this kind of assumption that is made that in every retreat you begin with days of the hindrances. Now, this is a, a kind of real assumption that every retreat you have to begin with the hindrances, that you begin with a few days of dullness and restlessness and doubt and negativity and craving. And if you've done retreats before, and as you've probably already found out, that after a few days the hindrances go away, and if you've ever talked to other people who've done retreats, you know, you hear that they go through the same process, they go through the hindrances, and after a few days they go away. And it's just assumed that this is the beginning of every retreat. But to me this is absolute nonsense. There's no reason why every retreat needs to begin with the hindrances. But, what often happens, of course, is that we become very skillful. The self actually becomes very skillful at dealing with that which it doesn't like. And the way that it learns to deal with that which it doesn't like is through strategies. And most yogis, old yogis, have got a whole package of strategies that have been really well polished over years of training. You know, and they're really skillful at bringing out the strategies. So, you know, come into a retreat and there's dullness and we all know exactly what to do. You know, everybody has done in a retreat before could give a talk on what to do with the hindrances. You know, the strategies to use. How to get through them. Assuming that this is just the nature of a retreat. Well, the hindrances, you know, a little tiny, the smallest amount of the hindrances is to do with adjusting. The largest amount of the hindrances is to do with the reluctance to let go of control. That's the hugest amount of the hindrances. Because when we come into this kind of aloneness, you know, the self starts screaming. And what it does is produce the hindrances. So then we feel, you know, we use our strategies, and after a few days the hindrances go away, and we think, well, that worked. Great, that worked. I know just know I know just what to do next time. But actually, the reason why the hindrances have often gone away is because the self feels more in control again. It feels more comfortable in the environment. It feels very successful in its strategies and feels more in control again. And sometimes you know, there's this kind of inner congratulation that takes place. You know, well, I've dealt with that one nicely. You know, I'm through that and I'm finished it. And now I go on with my retreat. Well, often we're very surprised to discover that the hindrances return. And they do return. Every time we are confronted with that which we hold on to. Every time our belief systems are challenged, every time our identities are challenged, every time there's a real, every time there's grasping and that grasping is challenged, the hindrances return. 
because again our sense of control and the survival of the self is challenged and so the hindrances return. Now it is useful sometimes, I'm not totally negating the value of strategies, sometimes strategies are useful but it's also useful to find out what happens when we employ no strategies but simply be awake. Because then we confront one of the greatest paradoxes in meditation, you know, is that here, we come here, we know that to be free there's going to be something let to let go of. And mostly what's going to be let go of, of course, are all of these identities we have and the belief systems we have about who we are. And we'd love to do that on one hand. We'd love to do it, you know, it sounds like a terrific thing, a wonderful thing to do, you know. Let go of this burden of, of I, of self. And yet the moment that it begins to come unstuck, even in the first day of a retreat, you know, there's this kind of desperation to stick it all back together again through the strategies and through the vehicles and through getting back into, into control again. Now, it does take, actually, the strategies can be useful. But it is helpful to remind ourselves that the actual purpose of meditation is to help us to see the insubstantiality of self and all of its belief systems. And sometimes we can forget this when we're so busy alleviating the symptoms of the self being challenged. Trust and faith and vision are incredibly important when it comes to being present with, with shadows and valleys, whether they're hindrances or whether there's a whole other variety of shadows and valleys of, of doubt and, and fear that we encounter in this practice. Every time we can commit ourselves to simply being awake to what is, to not knowing, not knowing, not demanding any guarantees, not demanding any any, any particular results, not demanding any, any predictability at all. Every time we can open ourselves and commit ourselves simply to not knowing, we are deepening in trust in our own possibilities and deepening in vision. Faith is needed, trust is needed to let go of grasping. Trust is needed so that we can open just to what is. Trust is needed so that we don't always rely upon strategies and so that we don't always attempt to cement together a spiritually acceptable form of self. Trust is needed and is expressed just by being present, just by being awake. And then we find that although we encounter shadows and demons and valleys in this practice, that that trust becomes so strong that it is really never taken. And it is founded upon vision that none of those shadows and none of those valleys can ever be a true definition of who we are. I'd like to read you one thing from the Tibetan story. story of Milarepa. Milarepa was a very famous Tibetan yogi who lived in caves, in a cave on a mountain, very simply, and 
you know, he was always being tested by his teacher, and he lived on nettles. That was one of the things he was more famous for. But he was also very wise. And one day, Nilanathal was out gathering nettles, predictively. And he went back to his cave. And when he got there, he found that his cave was inhabited by seven demons. So that was a very colorful with bodies the size of thumbs and eyes the size of cups. Some were making fire and some were bringing water. Some were grinding grain and some sat performing various magical tricks. And when Milarepa saw them, he was terrified. He didn't know what to do. There was no room for both him and the demons in this cave on this journey. And he began to wonder how could he get rid of these demons. And first he decided he would look for help outside. He would call upon the power and the authority of his guru and try to subjugate and subdue these demons. He uttered his mantra, he performed a gaze and he met it and he aroused his deity's presence. But he was unable to pacify the demons. And he said, oh, perhaps these are the local deities of this place. And I've been here for ages, and I haven't praised them, and I haven't given them any thanks or expressed any gratitude. So he began to thank the demons for having such a wonderful, made such a wonderful cave and had such a wonderful place for people to meditate. And he thanked them for being there and asked them to receive his friendliness and to be gone. Well, when Milarepa did this, three of the demons who were performing magic went away. But Milarepa was still unable to make the other four to go away. And he realized that these four were magical obstacles. So he tried another tack. He told them about what a great yogi he was, about how, how long he'd meditated, how powerful he was, how deep his meditation, how he'd studied with gurus, how he'd lived in solitude, how he was afraid of nothing. He said, it's wonderful you demons came today. Come again tomorrow and from time to time we should converse. Our three of the demons vanished. But the remaining demon was the most vicious and very powerful. And Milarepa realized that none of these strategies were going to work. He began to come back to his own vision of his practice and his trust in his practice. Realizing that if he could be afraid, then compassion had no meaning. That if he could be intimidated, then wisdom had no meaning. And he said to the demon, Demon, if you were to stay here longer, that would be fine with me. If you have friends, bring them along. We would talk out our differences. I feel compassion for the spirit. And with friendliness and compassion and without concern for himself, Milarepa placed himself in the mouth of the demon, but the demon couldn't eat him and vanished like a rainbow. May all beings live with trust. May all beings inspired by vision. May all beings live with wisdom. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.